Hello and welcome to another Linguistics Career Cast, the podcast devoted to exploring careers for linguists outside academia. I'm your host, Laurel Sutton. Christina Wagers is a Principal Solutions Architect at Gainwell Technologies. She is part of the conversation design team for Gainwell's interactive voice response technology. After starting out as a biology major, she switched to English language and literature and then earned her master's in applied linguistics through the University of Birmingham, specializing in discourse analysis and sociolinguistics. She's also been an English language instructor in Europe and the U.S. Topics discussed today include teaching English, TEFL, transferable skills, discourse analysis, sociolinguistics, market research, conversation design, chatbots, and self-care. Links to Christina's LinkedIn profile and other resources are in the show notes. Christina, thank you so much for joining us today. I am super excited to talk with you about um, all of the things that you've done uh, on your way to getting where you are today. So thank you for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to talk to you again. Yeah, it's been a while. Um, So let's start with your academic adventures. And I say adventures because your path to linguistics was, um, it had many byways, it seems like it was not a straight line. So I'm really curious to know how you got from being a bio major to getting into language and linguistics, and then finally actually getting a degree in linguistics. So however you want to tell that story, I would love to hear it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I guess in retrospect, it makes a lot of sense because even when I was a kid, I loved languages. I loved learning. You know, if I heard someone speaking another language, I would, you know, ask them about it. I had puzzles that my parents bought me that were like Rosetta Stone type translation puzzles. Mm -hmm. Um, So it makes a lot of sense looking back. But I think I just had no idea what linguistics was or that it was even a possible career choice. So when I started undergrad, I started as a bio major because I wanted to become a vet. Mm -hmm. Um, About three years into it, circumstances changed. And I basically, I knew I wasn't going to be able to go to to vet school. I wasn't going going to be able to afford it. Mm -hmm. So I kind of had to take a step back and just be like, oh my gosh, what do I do now? (laughs) So I continued taking some night classes, some online classes, um, and just threw together everything that I had had in my first three years, some gen eds, and somehow came out with an English degree. <laughs> um, <laughs> I didn't take a single linguistics course in undergrad. It was both mostly um, like literature uh, mm-hmm. type things. Um, so after I graduated with this English degree that I was not planning on, I had no idea what I was going to do. I thought, oh my gosh, what? where do I go from here? So I ended up after some, you know, retrospect or uh, some, some, some thinking, I went to Europe and I decided to teach there mm-hmm. because what else am I going to do with an English degree, but teach English. So I went there for a semester kind of to buy myself time, I guess, to figure out what I wanted to do long-term. And after a few months, I was kind of like, wait a minute, this is awesome. I'm, I'm getting paid. I'm teaching English. I'm living in Europe. This is a pretty cool deal. So I ended up going to Peru then and getting certified to teach English and then coming back to Europe and staying there for about three years, mm-hmm. um, teaching English as a foreign language. And while I was there, I realized that I, I really liked learning languages. I mean, I kind of knew that before, but it, it solidified that. I kind of dived a little bit deeper into 
language in general, just because it, you know, teaching it just led me down that path. And I was kind of like, what else can I do with this? So basically when I decided that I wanted to come back to the States, I knew that I didn't want to keep teaching because it, that was never really the plan. It was kind of just to buy myself time. And I figured out that, hey, a master's degree could be useful. I could learn a little bit more about the language side of things rather than the teaching side of things. I can you know, maybe figure out what specialty I like. Um, and at that point, I came back to the US. I kept teaching. And I started my master's degree uh, with the University of Birmingham in the UK, which I was doing it online while I was uh, working in, um, in California. So I guess that brings me to my master's degree. Basically, I, I focused on sociolinguistics and discourse analysis while I was doing my master's. Um, and my plan was to basically teach my way through my master's. So keep teaching until I graduated. Um, and that was going great um, until the pandemic hit um, and I got laid off with about six months left in my master's degree. And that's when I was kind of like, again, for the second time, oh, what do I do? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so at that point, I was kind of like, okay, well, I don't want to keep teaching. So I started looking into what I could do in education, you know, make, for example, making uh, curriculum, curriculum design, or working for language learning apps, that type of thing. And it was at that point where you and I actually met at the Linguistics Career, uh, Linguistics Beyond Academia conference. Mm -hmm. um, it was actually that summer. I got laid off and I found it right at the right time. And um, that really helped me to kind of figure out what was ahead of me, what I could, what I could use my linguistics for. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so that, I guess, brings me to my summer of unemployment and um, linguistics discovery, I guess, um, where I took some coding classes, I learned about computational linguistics, I learned, you know, kind of what there is beyond just teaching and doing my master's. Can we step back just for a moment? Sure. I've got some questions about all oh, this. Oh, of course. <laughs> so when you went to Europe to teach English, were you multilingual at that point? Um, when I got there, I thought I was, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and then I got there and I tried to like order a coffee and I realized, oh my gosh, I, I don't speak any Spanish. Like I thought I did by the time I left. Yes. Um, so I do speak Spanish and French now. Okay. All right. Um, and then, um, you went from Europe to Peru, right? Yeah. Um, that was mostly just because I wanted to get my teaching certificate and I, I didn't know where to get it. So I looked online, I found a course in Peru, and that's where I did it. <laughs> wow. Okay, that's amazing. How was yeah. it going from Europe to Peru, though? I mean, isn't the Spanish there really different? It is. Um, but I think in undergrad and in high school, I studied Latin American Spanish. So oh, okay, there you go. So, that makes a difference. So yeah, yeah so it, it was not quite as um, scary as when I first went to Spain. Okay. Um, and wow, that's amazing. So this, so the time I, I know you mentioned before you, you weren't, you decided against being a vet because of financial reasons and to, like, I know about that in the United States, it's horrendously expensive to become a vet and there aren't that many mm -hmm. schools competitive. Yep. I know people who have done it and it's brutal, really brutal. 
Yeah. So this, the whole time that, that you were going in Europe, were you basically supporting yourself by by teaching English? Yes. Okay. And and you were able to, to go to Peru and do all that as well, still just supporting yourself by teaching English? Correct. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, I would come home um, during the summers and uh, like bartend. I, I've had mm -hmm. a lot of odd jobs. Um, mm -hmm. So I bartend. I worked in restaurants. I worked in banks when I was an undergrad. Um, one summer I worked at Mack Truck uh, building trucks. <laughs> wow. Um, so I've just kind of taken all the odd jobs I could get to to support myself while I was going I guess gallivanting around the world. Well, I wouldn't say gallivanting. I mean, it sounds like a lot of fun, but you know, you were you you were doing something to advance yourself, and you were also expanding your language skills at the same time. One of the things that that I'm I'm really interested in as we talk with people for the podcast is finding out people's employment history, because mm -hmm. it, it seems to kind of break down into people like you and and me, frankly, who have had like a million odd jobs to support yeah. yourself. And then people who were lucky enough to come from a background where they had financial support. And yeah. experiences of those two groups are incredibly different. And mm -hmm. that is something that doesn't really get talked about enough. You know, um, most of the people who are professors or, or who used to be anyway, don't have a lot of the doing a thousand odd jobs experience. So it, it yeah. really affects what your higher education is like, what is available for you to do, and just how you have to manage all of that, right? Like you don't yeah. have the money. So you got to think about, well, am I going to have enough to pay my rent and buy food and pay my car insurance? And for some people, that's just not an issue. Um, right. So it's just an area of um, financial difference that needs to be brought more to the forefront. And it absolutely plays into the idea of whether you're going to stay in academia or not, because um, as I'm sure you're going to get to, like the difference between working in industry and what you get paid and working in academia and what you get paid is like a vast. Gulf. Oh my gosh. It's, it's <laughs> not even comparable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um, I, I didn't yeah. want to get too far off track, but oh, I, no. I think that that's really interesting um, that that was your experience. And then um, something else that, that you mentioned, you, you'd sent me this little, you know, kind of um, bullet pointed summary of what you've done. And you said that you realize that you love language, which is what most people who go into linguistics will say. But also, mm -hmm. as you said, like, I didn't know what linguistics was uh, true for me right. also and many other people. Um, but you didn't want to teach and yet you spent all that time teaching English as a second language. Do you feel like being in academia and teaching linguistics is substantially different than teaching English as as a second language to people? Like, what are those two experiences like? Ooh. Um, well, the reason I spent so much time in Europe wasn't because I loved teaching. It was because I loved traveling and that was my okay, way to do so. Okay, cool. Um, cool. I mean, I did, I, I loved the students and I loved learning about different cultures and I loved, mm -hmm. you, you know, I loved certain aspects of it, but as a career, it just, it, I think most teachers will tell you that they're overworked and underpaid. Mm -hmm. And that was my experience. And I was mm -hmm. just stressed all the time because either, you know, I was working so hard and it just felt like I wasn't getting paid enough, quite frankly, you know, for mm -hmm. the work, the amount of work I was doing. So it was just stressful. I wasn't earning enough. It was, you know, once I got back to the States, I would say that I even made less than what I made in Europe. Um, mm. I mean, as far as the cost of living goes. Yeah, yeah. So it was just, it just, I couldn't do it anymore. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I think that goes for most teachers in general, whether it 
be teaching English as a foreign language or if it's, you know, teaching um, in elementary schools or adjuncts or whatever it is, I think that teachers are just overworked and underpaid in mm -hmm. general. Yeah, I, I think everybody agrees with that. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. And so you had a job for a while using your linguistics background and, and you got laid off. How did you get that job? How did that one come to you? So I got laid off from teaching. Okay. Um, so that one, it was fairly, I don't want to say easy to get, but it, it, it made sense because I was teaching in Europe and then I came to the United States and it was very, um, it was a step that wasn't so far-fetched, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, but as far as my first industry job, mm -hmm. um, that took a little, that was a little bit of a learning curve. And I wish that, you know, I had known more about like these types of podcasts and things when I was trying to get into industry because, you know, the Linguistics Beyond Academia conference was just so helpful. And it was, it was really life-changing just to, you know, network with people, understand, you know, how they got from academia to industry um, to understand the types of transferable skills that I have. You know, when, before I went to that conference, I had no idea that, I mean, I guess I did, but I, I don't think I would have put two and two together that teaching is time management and teaching mm -hmm. is people mm -hmm. management mm -hmm. and, you know, working in a bar absolutely transfers to you know, what I'm doing now. Uh, for example, when I was working at um, my first job in industry, which I, I'll talk about in a minute, um, I had to present my findings to big pharmaceutical companies. Had I ever done that before? No, but I had gotten in front of a classroom and mm -hmm. taught. I had mm -hmm. worked with people when I was working in banking and when I was working in bars. And, you know, it, it's, it's those types of things where you learn these skills along the way. And I think that you don't always recognize that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, hundred percent. I I think that's right. I in my own job um, in marketing, I felt exactly the same way. All the stuff that I had to teach when I was mm -hmm. in graduate school and being a TA was just the same as getting up in front of a room full of executives and saying, "Okay, now I'm going to lead you through these names." It's it, right, the, right. The skill set is exactly the same and more challenging in some ways, but easier in other ways, you know, you just have yeah. to kind of massage your skill set to, to talk to people. But it, that kind of stuff helps you in, in so many ways um, with every kind of client contact as well, because you, you're, you've done the people skills thing. I think bartending is actually a really good example of a way that you learn to talk with people because you are in the customer service business, but you're also angling for tips. So right. you want to you want to flatter people and, and get them to think that you're a good person, and then you make some money off of it. So it's it's subtle, but I've done bartending too, and I agree, it's it's yeah. a lot of the same stuff. Yeah, it's a lot of reading the room and understanding. Yeah. You know, does this person you know like where I'm going with this conversation, or should should I switch the tone? Mm -hmm. Should I you know explain this to them in a different way? Should I drop it? You know, there's so much that just, you know, working in, especially the restaurant and hospitality industry can teach you that is absolutely a transferable skill. And I think mm -hmm. that was one thing that I learned over that summer was you, like, even if you've, you know, on, quote, only had, you know, experiences in college, you know, with working, you know, as a barista or, you know, leading the debate team or something like that, that is absolutely transferable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That That's great. I'm glad we got to talk about that. Uh, so continue. So this, this job that you got, your first industry job, tell us about that. 
Yeah, so that was partially through learning about, you know, transferable skills and, you know, figuring out that what I was doing in my master's program directly correlated. Um, but also it was partially networking. So people that I met um, at the conference, as well as over LinkedIn, you know, I connected with them, learned about, um, you know, the skills that were most important, which helped me to kind of highlight on my resume. You know, these are the things that I've done in teaching. These are the things that I've done in my master's program. And here's how I can use them to succeed in this role. Um, I think that it, it was definitely a leap, but it wasn't as big a of a leap as I thought it was going to be because I, mm -hmm. I had the skills. I just didn't know how to frame it and learning to frame, for example, um, discourse analysis as, mm -hmm. you know, he healthcare market research analysis. You know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm analyzing language in both of these. I, I have the tools. I have, you know, the sociolinguistic skills. You know, I, I've taken sociolinguistics courses. So when I'm analyzing, you know, transcripts from providers and patients, I can take sociolinguistic factors into account. Mm -hmm. um, so it was just thinking about, okay, what have I done in both my academic career and in my past jobs, whether it be teaching or whatever it was, and how can I use that in this job to succeed and just mm -hmm. framing it that way. And yeah, um, so I got the job and I worked there for about a year and it was it was great. I mean, it was really interesting. It was a lot of analysis like I had done in undergrad. Um, so it wasn't that far out. I did some corpus work there. It was, it was really awesome. Um, and I, I think that research roles like that one are not as far of a step mm -hmm. from academia. Um, mm -hmm. So it was, it was kind of a nice stepping stone into the yeah. industry world. Yeah. And I think jobs like that too are becoming even more important, especially in healthcare. Yeah, because the healthcare companies, especially in the U.S., now have such a, a diverse population that they need to serve, and mm -hmm. there are people in healthcare, um, unbelievably, who are concerned with serving their patients well rather than yeah. just profit. Sometimes, although I guess it is all profit-driven in the end, but having linguists yeah. there to actually analyze the communication that they're using to get better outcomes is an incredible yeah. use of linguistic skills. And anybody oh, who's sure. yeah, anyone who's done some sociolinguistics like that, that is exactly what you are doing. It's some kind of data analysis, discourse analysis, using all of the um, training that you've used to, to pick up these cues and especially see where the communication goes wrong and how it can be improved. Yeah. So there it's important. It's, it's also um, from folks that I've talked to who have done things like um, chatbots or um, voice recognition stuff. It's figuring out what people say that's going to make sense and how the response can then make sense to the person, the human that's there. How can the machine respond in a way that the person is going to respond to it? And that's by looking at all the errors. That's the only way you find out is like, where does it go wrong and how do we fix that? Yeah. And, and funnily enough, that's actually what I'm doing now. Oh, cool. <laughs> um, all right. So, so it all does come full circle. You know, I, I feel like these skills, even though I've done so many different things, even within linguistics, the skills are the same, you know, it's just using them in a different way, whether it be mm -hmm. teaching, you know, a certain language and certain structures of conversation to humans or bots or researching them in a paper. I mean, it's, it's still the same um, skills that, you know, I've, I've picked up over the years and I've learned in my master's program. Um, and 
yeah, it, it, it all comes for a full circle, I guess. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. And have any of the jobs that you've had had linguist in the title? Um, no. Okay, good. <laughs> I just, just wanted to get that in there. Always, you know, can't repeat that too much. It's, yes. you, you know, your job as a linguist is never going to have linguist in the title. The closest, so my first industry job, it was something like research, researcher, comma, linguistic insights and analytics, mm-hmm. but I never actually used the full title. It was just like researcher. Researcher. Yeah, of course. That's, yeah. that's what mm-hmm. you were doing. So you had this job, you got some great training. I, mm-hmm. If you don't mind talking about it, I would love to hear the roller coaster of um, having a job, getting laid off from a job, being unemployed for a while, and then finding another job because this is yeah. something that people have to deal with in industry, right? And yeah. it it's scary, but also there are things that you learn going through the experience that put it into a perspective and eventually it, it becomes normalized, right? That's what people mm-hmm. do in industry. It's not like getting tenure. It's yeah. you get a job, maybe you quit, maybe you get laid off, but then you find another job and do that. And that's the normality of industry work. So right. um, tell us what your experience was with that. Yeah. So just to be clear, I did get laid off twice. Um, mm-hmm. So we're not repeating anything. This is my <laughs> okay. second layoff in two years. <laughs> um, so I got laid off from my teaching job in 2021. And then I got laid off again after about a year of working in my first industry job. So that was in July of 2022. Um, and that was not fun. It was unexpected. Mm. I didn't, I, I was totally unprepared. Um, I did get two months of severance, which helped a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but it still was just not enough. Um, unemployment is, you know, it's very stressful. Yeah. Um, and I probably, I applied to at least a hundred jobs that I kept track of, but mm-hmm. probably more, you know, you hit the easy apply button on LinkedIn and, you know, but, oof, I don't even know where to start. Um, was it like um, multiple people, They the company was doing something and they laid some people off. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it, it yep. wasn't like you were targeted in any oh, way. Oh, no, absolutely yeah. not. I think okay. they had to lay off a certain amount of people and my name was drawn out of a hat or whatever however it was that they yeah. that they did that yeah okay I, um, I just think it's important to say that because again this is how it works in industry you yeah. know when you get laid off as opposed to being fired for you know right. i don't know stealing cookies from the staff the break room or something right it's it's not like you can't take it personally you really can't it just happens it's the way it's the cycle of industry we've just gone through some really severe tech layoffs but yeah. what that means is that in six months, they're going to be hiring again because they won't have any people to do the work and they got to find <laughs> some more people to do the work. So it, yeah. it is very cyclical and, and you absolutely can't take it as a personal thing. It hurts and it's scary yeah. and confusing, but you can't think I have failed because you got laid off. That's not that's not the way it works. No, absolutely not. And especially with my last company, um, the person that gave me the news that I was being laid off they did not, I do not blame them at all. They actually helped me later on. They gave me some contacts, you know, mm-hmm. they, they met with me afterward. Um, and I'm still on good terms with the people that I worked with. I'm still mm-hmm. on good terms with the 
first job that laid me off, you know, they told me that they would take me back if I ever moved back to California, you know, now, but I'm not going to. Um, but, you know, I'm still on good terms with with most of the people um, that I worked with and mm -hmm. that that I had those experiences with. So, you know, yeah, I, I guess I'm just solidifying that. No, it's definitely not anything personal. It definitely is awful. <laughs> it was mm -hmm. not fun, but no, it's nothing that I did. And there was nothing I could really do about it. And there's nothing that the people that laid me off could really do about it either. Cause mm -hmm. it, it, for the most part, it wasn't their choice. It was the higher yeah. ups. Yeah. Okay. Um, so after you got over the shock, mm -hmm. uh, did, did you, did, how did you approach looking for a new job? Like, um, did you have a plan? Did you write things down and, and set yourself goals or, or was it just more following leads instinctually? Well, I didn't have a plan because I wasn't planning on being laid off. Um, you know, with my, well, I, I guess I say that I'm, I'm not trying to be funny, but the, the first time I got laid off, I did kind of plan on switching from teaching to industry. So it was kind of already in the back of my head. I was already thinking about what I was going to do. So the first time I kind of had like a general idea of places to apply kind of, mm -hmm. um, or at least it was in the back of my head that it was going to happen. Um, I just needed some direction as to how to get there. Whereas the second time I had no plan, but because I had gone through it before, it wasn't quite as mm -hmm. uh, foreign to me, I guess. Yeah. Um, so the first thing I did after, like you said, after the shock of it, um, I actually met with the person that laid me off. <laughs> so it was like two mm -hmm. days later and we got on a Zoom call and they gave me a bunch of contacts to reach out to, um, and which I did. I had a bunch of inter informational interviews with some of my network from a year prior, because it was only, I guess, 14 months prior that I had been unemployed before. So I still had those contacts. I did some inter informational interviews, um, just kind of getting a feel for what else I could do. Um, and at first I had looked at the same type of industry. So healthcare market research, which, it's pretty niche. Um, mm -hmm. And I realized that pretty quickly that there weren't too many places that did exactly that. So then I expanded to just market research in general. Um, I had some interviews there. I, you know, just, it, I kind of just went where the road took me. You know, I kind of went from healthcare market research to market research to, okay, research in general to, okay, well, this is kind of going nowhere. What else can I do? Um, and after a few months and doing kind of exactly that, I ended up looking into conversation design because I thought, well, you know, I taught humans how to have conversations. So, <laughs> you know, I can probably teach a robot to do, to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I had some interviews with conversation design companies or companies that had chatbots, you know, um, and I ended up taking a course. It was from, I think the conversation design Institute, which, was pretty useful just, you know, putting into perspective what exactly has to be done. So taking stuff that I guess you wouldn't really think about and just putting it in front of you. Um, so for example, like making a personality for your bot. Um, so kind of thinking of your audience and, mm -hmm. you know, thinking of what the tone should be, things that, you know, I guess aren't um, revolutionary, but that you might not actually think about when you're interviewing or thinking of changing um, careers. Mm -hmm. So that, that was really useful. I listened to some podcasts about um, chatbots and conversation design. And 
I ended up actually getting recruited for my current job. So they actually reached out to me. Um, I had a few interviews with them. It was pretty quick. Um, and suddenly I had a job after six months. How did they recruit um, you? Was it on LinkedIn? It actually wasn't. It was on ZipRecruiter, um, oh, okay. which most of what I do is through LinkedIn. So I was kind of surprised when I saw ZipRecruiter. I actually thought it was spam. <laughs> and I listened and I was like, okay, <laughs> this, this actually looks legit. <laughs> um, so I called the person back and I we spoke for like five minutes. Um, they were like, okay, you sound great. I'm going to move you on to the next round. Um, went to the next round. It was the same thing. We spoke for a few minutes. They were kind of like, oh, wow, your resume is great. We're going to move you on to talk to the, the company. And then from there, it was just two more interviews. Um, and it just seemed like it was a really good fit. Like they liked my experience. They liked, um, I guess I, I was a little bit more knowledgeable because I had listened to interviews on the subject. I had taken that course. So I, mm -hmm. it was fresh in my mind. Um, I talked like I said about my transferable skills, it had been six months at that point. <laughs> so I was kind of on an interview role. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, funnily enough, I had heard the salary and I was like, there's no way this is like way over my head. I, this probably is not for me. So I'm just going to go in there and just go for it. Mm -hmm. And I kind of went in there with all the confidence in the world. Cause I thought, you know, what do I, what do I have to lose at this yeah. point? And yeah, I ended up getting it. Did they ever tell you what it was about your resume on ZipRecruiter that uh, hooked them, that made them want to recruit you? Um, they didn't ask, but I will say that I revamped my resume during unemployment number one. Um, mm -hmm. And that was during that um, Linguistics Beyond Academia conference, there was that uh, resume workshop mm -hmm. where... Um, Rather than having, for example, just basic, you know, taught English, making it quantifiable, I think really helps. So, you know, instructed language learners in English conversation or specialized in grammar and syntax, you know, like very mm -hmm. quantifiable as much as you can, you know, if you can have numbers in there or results in there, um, I think that that's always helpful. Mm -hmm. um, I think I also have a skills section where I have conversation design. I put that in there, be, there because even though I hadn't been a conversation designer, I have the skills for conversation design. So I put right. that in there. Research and analytics. Even before I had my job as a researcher, I had skills to research. I did that throughout my master's program. So I put research and analytics directly under the skills. And then underneath that, I had all of my master's courses. So discourse analysis, um, sociolinguistics, you know, so I... I made it very, um, very tailored for what I wanted to do rather than, I guess, underselling myself, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. making sure that I had things that I had done, things that I had accomplished, um, all of the skills that I had in a really, a really clear, concise, um, quantifiable way. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. There, there's so many things in what you were just saying that I, I'm, I'm like mentally pulling out just as bullet points. So the first thing about what you said about getting recruited on ZipRecruiter and not expecting it is a great lesson in putting yourself out there in as many places as possible because you never know, right? Yeah. You just never oh, know. Oh, absolutely. So it's not just LinkedIn. It's not just Indeed. It's it's like just put yourself out there everywhere that you can possibly put yourself out because that might be the place where somebody finds you and, and matches up with you. And I, I really like what you were saying about going into that interview 
thinking mm-hmm. I don't have anything to lose because this is absolutely something and I know this as a, a, a person who's done interviews for people that were hiring, when someone comes in with the attitude of, you want me, I'm great, and you'd be lucky to have me, not in an arrogant mm-hmm. way, but just in a very confident way, is so different than the person who comes in with a, I am desperate for a job, please hire me attitude. The right. latter is not going to get you hired because people don't like that. It doesn't feel yeah. good. So even if you are putting on some bravado, about your experiences or your chances of getting the job, it will absolutely be the way that people will want to hire you. You know, you just have to feel confident. And this is very different from how we're trained to be in academia. So it's a Mm -hmm. mind shift that you have to not undersell yourself. You really have to get out there and say, I'm amazing. Look at all the cool stuff that I've done. You guys would be lucky to have me on your team. That's the way you get a job. Definitely. And what you just said um, kind of it reminded me of this study that I had saw that I had seen that this was a gendered study. It was um, it was a sociolinguistics something or other. But um, it was talking about how when you look at um, a job posting, men tend to apply when they meet something like 60 percent of the qualifications. Yeah. But women only apply if they meet 100 percent of them. Right. Yes. Don't do that. No matter what gender you are, don't do that. Don't wait until you meet 100% of the qualifications or requirements. If you meet 100%, you are probably overqualified. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I think the way I've heard it put is those requirements on jobs, those are wish lists. And yes. nobody expects the candidates who come in to hit every single one of them. You know, 60% is pretty good. You know, 50% mm-hmm. is probably adequate. <laughs> yeah. 60% is good. Anything above that is is going to be a lot of extra. Um, but again, it's it's getting out of that academic mindset where you feel like you have to do it all and do it all perfectly before you are even allowed to enter the conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. So talk about what you do in your job now. And actually, I'm, I'm really interested to know if what you do in your job now is different from what they told you when they were recruiting you, or is it is it really the same? So it's, it's pretty much the same. Um, what I do now is we build um, chatbots and interactive voice response systems for um, Medicaid. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're working as, we're, so I don't work for Medicaid. We are a private company that works for Medicaid and builds out um, various states' interactive voice response. Um, so what that means is basically if, if you've ever called a company and, you know, that robot answers and says, hello, how may I help you today? Um, basically, we're trying to make the experience less terrible. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I say that because every time I tell someone this, their response is, oh, I hate those those robots. Of course, <laughs> you know? yes. But the idea is to make them more conversational rather than, you know, press one for English, press two for other, mm-hmm. or press two for Spanish, you know, making it more of a conversation. Um, so that's really what we're trying to do is build out a, an interactive voice response system that you feel like you can talk to, that you know that it's not a person, but it doesn't feel like it's not a person, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's basically what I do on a day-to-day basis is kind of going through, looking at you know what the client needs, um, what, what people are calling about, building out um, different ways to 
I'm trying to explain this in a way. So I guess make the experience a little bit better by um, kind of giving more options, but um, you know, not not confusing the person, not frustrating the person, letting them get to the agent if the bot can't do something. So mm -hmm. recognizing when when they can do something versus can't do something, because you know everybody hates when you get stuck talking to the bot and you know that you can't <laughs> fix it with mm -hmm. the bot because it's very specific. You know, so kind of making sure that that is something that's recognized easily. Um, but if it is something that's very simple, um, to be able to do that and do it effectively and do it in a way that isn't taking forever. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's a lot of, to be honest, it's what a, a lot of what I did in teaching plus a little bit of coding because I'm thinking, okay, what are some synonyms for this? What are some various ways that someone can ask for this thing? What are some common um, mispronunciations uh, that the bot might not recognize that I should program in there? Um, so it's really interesting. I, I, I like it a lot. Are you the only linguist who's working on that or, or do you have a team of linguists? So actually right before I was hired, they got permission to expand the team. So I guess they had just done some, so I guess they had been working with contractors and they got permission to expand the team within the company. So I was hired at the exact same time as two other people. Um, so the three of us work together and we, we right now are working on the same projects and kind of splitting everything depending on um, our strengths. So there's one guy on the team that's really good at coding, which I have, you know, a foundation, but I'm not a coder. Whereas he had taken a few courses like, um, like he has some certificates in mm -hmm. various uh, coding languages. So he does a lot of that, whereas I'll do more of the analysis, whereas um, the other person on the team will do more um, of research and development for market trends, for example. So we kind of split things in a nice way, just basically based on our, our strengths. I have to say, I, I looked on your LinkedIn and I love the fact that your job title is architect. I think that's yeah. really cool. <laughs> um, yeah. It's just, it, it's a, an, a really interesting way of framing what you do, right? So you're designing something, you're designing a structure mm -hmm. in which stuff is going to happen. Like the stuff is going to happen one way or the other, but you are responsible for making this structure that holds up no matter what gets thrown at it in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Mm, that's cool. Um, so you've been working there now for a while. Do you feel like this is where you want to stay or, or do you feel like there are other places that you'd like to go given your linguistic training and your experience? Well, given my, my history in the last couple of years of switching jobs and being laid off and all of that, I do not want anything different <laughs> for a while. <laughs> um, so for the foreseeable future, I definitely, if I can want to stay here, um, but like I said, or I guess what I've learned is that nothing is certain in industry. So even mm -hmm. though, you know, it's awesome and I love it and I'm making a lot more money than I did in academia as a teacher, um, you know, nothing is certain. So I'm kind of hoping for the best and planning for the worst. So if something were to happen, it wouldn't catch me off guard. Mm -hmm. But I absolutely do not want to change jobs anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that totally makes sense. Um, for the the way you're working right now, are you going into the office every day? Or are you doing remote work? It is all remote. Um, oh, so I have been 100% remote since 
I guess since February of 2020. Mm -hmm. So I haven't gone into the office in over three years. Okay. And, and everything's cool, right? Like it doesn't affect your work at all. Oh no, I, I love it. Um, I am actually, so right now I'm living in a, a one bedroom. I'm going to upgrade to a two bedroom just so I have a separate office space. Mm-hmm. Um, and because sometimes my cats like to come and sit on my keyboard, um, <laughs> I kind of want to be able to lock them out if need be. <laughs> um, but I think <clears throat> I think just having a separate workspace. So right now I have in one corner of my living room, I'm facing the window. So I'm not looking into you know my living room. I'm, I, I feel like I have a little bit of a separate space. Um, and I think for some people that works. For me, it's awesome. I love it. I would not want to go back into an office. Mm-hmm. I know for some people, they need that face-to-face either socialization or mm-hmm. that, you know, getting out of the house and kind of switching on work mode. Uh, for me, I can do that just by going over to my desk. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's really personal preference. And I think, you know, for remote roles, if working in your house isn't for you, you know, I have friends that go to cafes, you know, or that they go, I had one friend who actually had like an office space in the city. I don't remember if he had to rent it or if it was just, you know, somewhere that he was able to go for free, but just getting out of the house sometimes helps people. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's all personal preference. Yeah, totally. It's, everybody has a, a, a different environment that they feel most productive in. And yeah, um, I, I wanted to, to ask you too, you know, um, in the, the linguistics career launch event, we talked some about this and, and I've talked with other people about it, just working styles. So how important it is to figure out the kind of work style where you can thrive and do your work. So for you, you have, it sounds like a small team, right? You don't mm-hmm. work on a team of yep. 20 people and it's fairly focused what you do, but each person has their own area of expertise and there's a little bit of overlap there. Yeah. Do, so for you, that sounds like it, it's working really well. Do you work on, um, is it kind of project-based or is it more long-term like you have this product and you're just improving it in increments, which way does it tend to go? Um, I think it's somewhere in the middle um, Mm. because it's project-based in that there's various states that we are working on. So it's Mm -hmm. kind of, we'll start a state and, you know, have that be like the main focus for right now and then the next state. But it's also long-term because you have to monitor those states and make sure that, you know, everything's going well, or if there's something that can be improved, or if one state implements something, you know, you can maybe take it to the other one and and say, this worked really well, let's try this um, to, you know, for containment rates or whatever. Um, And then there's also mini projects that we do here and there, um, you know, adding like a little FAQ bot or, you know, Mm -hmm. adding just some quirk to to the system, you know, so there's mini projects. I think that it's kind of project-based, but it's also focused on the long-term, if Mm -hmm. that answers your question. Yeah, yeah. no, It's kind of a little bit of everything, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, it it totally does. Uh, It it sounds really interesting. It it sounds engaging and that there's enough variety there that you don't get bored because that's a problem sometimes with work is if you do the same thing too much, you can get bored with it. And and it all relates back to your own personality type, like what works for you. And it sounds like for you, it's, it's really great. For me personally, um, I find that when I work kind of on on things by myself or like project based where I'm just kind of 
behind my computer, not really interacting with people. For me, it works a lot better because then I have energy to save for when I'm hanging with my friends or going mm -hmm. out on weekends or seeing family, you know, um, I can kind of save up that energy. Whereas when I was teaching, my whole job was interacting with people all day, every day. Yeah. And by the end of the week, I did not want to see anybody. I just wanted to sit in my house and do nothing. Right. So I think also figuring out what gives you energy and what takes energy. You know, I'm, I'm sure that there are people who can teach all week and, you know, by the end of it, they want to go out to dinner with their friends and, mm -hmm. you know, that's great, but that just was not for me. You know, teaching was sucking the energy out of me. Whereas if I am behind a computer and just having meetings every now and then, I'm just so much happier and so much more full of energy that I can do the things that I actually want to do on weekends. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. And I, I agree, absolutely correct. It's it's so important to know what keeps you going and, and how you can function, what kind of work environment you're going to be able to function in. And that changes too over time. You know, I, I think about when I was younger and mm -hmm. I would be working sometimes 60 hour weeks and I still felt like I could go out and do things afterwards. But now it's like, mm -hmm. If I'm sitting at my computer for three or four hours, that's it. I'm not doing anything for the rest of the day. Like, I'm, I'm not yeah. even going to watch TV. I'm just going to sit in bed <laughs> and listen to a podcast yeah. or something. Um, so it requires a certain amount of self-awareness as to what's working for you, what's changing for you. Um, some people need to change their work styles, too, because of their personal situation changing. So it's different whether you're single or you have a partner or you have kids or you don't have kids or, you know, yeah. you, you get a new pet or you move and you're in a different living environment or if mm -hmm. you're ill um, or if you get chronically ill. I mean, this is a, an issue that I think the workforce in the United States and globally is facing is that there's going to be a lot of people with long COVID soon mm -hmm. who are going to have very compromised work situations. And that's something that, you know, we have to deal with and that people yeah. have to understand about themselves when they think, God, I have no energy to do this. It's like, well, you have a chronic disease now and you need to accommodate yeah. that. So all, all of those things are, are part of your work style and your work environment. And yeah. um, just, I hate to keep going back to the academic model again, but it very much in academia is like none of that stuff matters, right? It shouldn't ever matter. You should right. always be doing the, the same amount of work and delivering the same amount of whatever it is, regardless of whether you're single, you have kids, you don't have kids, yeah, you have a partner, you know, you have a good living situation, you have a shitty living situation. It doesn't matter. Like it's, right. it's all the same. And I think industry tends to be more accommodating, not great, but better. Oh, for sure. And I think, I think remote work has also been very like life changing for, mm. you know, just either if you have chronic illness, or like you said, if you have kids or pets, or, you know, whatever it is, you know, you have a little bit more flexibility where if you need to, you know, I foster kittens. Um, mm -hmm. That's kind of what I do now that, you know, I'm not a vet. <laughs> um, yeah. But if I need to, I can put my kittens right next to my workspace, you know, mm -hmm. keep an eye on them, make sure um, if there's anything going on, I can just move right over, check on them and then come back to my work. Whereas right. I wouldn't be able to do that if I were in an office or right. at a school or, or whatever. Right. Right. And, and for you, fostering kittens, isn't like a hobby, right? It's a thing. It's important right. to you. Right. It gives mm -hmm. you joy. It, it fulfills yeah. your life in, in a way. So it's, it's not just a thing that always has to be 10th on the list. It's, it's right up there with all of the other yeah. things that go on. And, 
I think that is something we all need to recognize. What are the things in our lives that are important that we have to put up there on the priority list and take into account when we're looking for jobs or changing jobs or asking for things from our employer? Like, what is important that you can bring up as something that you want to try to um, make more of a priority for you? And everybody of needs course. to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And especially, especially because, you know, one thing I've learned over the last couple of years is that your job is not certain. Mm. So if you make your job your life, you know, it, it, it can just be gone in an instant, but mm -hmm. your job that is, um, you know, so having things that are important to you outside of work is, oh my gosh, it's just crucial. You know, if I hadn't had kittens with me when I was unemployed mm -hmm. the second time, I would have lost my mind. I mean, I still lost my mind. I was talking to the kittens far too often. <laughs> But, you know, it, it gave me that sense of purpose, you know, yeah. um, that I felt if I had put everything into my work, it probably would have felt like my whole world was crashing down, which it yeah. did to an extent, but I mm -hmm. had other things. I, you know, I run, I was training for my half marathon. I was fostering mm -hmm. kittens. So it was, you know, it's so important to not put all of your eggs in one basket. Um, mm -hmm. And I think having a job that you like is important, but I don't think that leaning so much that your job has to be your source of income, your source of joy, your sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. it, it, it doesn't have to be all of those things. And, and I would argue that it shouldn't be all of those things. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. Uh, there's a couple of Facebook groups that I have, um, I, I am part of, and I have talked about them before. And one of them is called um, The Professor is Out. Uh, so I encourage people to sign up for that if they want to be in a group, and it's a very large group now, of people who are trying to get out of academia. And mm. many times people who have been in for a while and who are sometimes tenured, but more often adjunct since nobody's hiring for tenure anymore. Mm. And they say that this thing that you're talking about is not something that they thought about, but their mm. identity is so wrapped up in whatever their academic position is that when they don't have it anymore, it's a real crisis. And, yeah. you know, that was who you were. You were a professor. You were, you were a teaching assistant. Now what am I? Yeah. I'm, I'm not doing that anymore, but who am I? I don't know what I'm doing. And, and it takes a while to readjust and remember the things about your life that, that weren't that, that are important to you. And it, it's, again, it's changing your mindset on it because academia doesn't really want you to do all those things. Your entire personality should be invested in, you know, your professorship or, or whatever it is you happen to have. Yeah, Absolutely. So I remember the question I wanted to ask you, and, and this is kind of coming at it a little sideways from this academia discussion, but <laughs> do you feel like um, if you wanted to, you could continue to research and, and write and publish papers, peer-reviewed type papers? Ooh, I mean, I'm sure I could. I, definitely, I'm sure I could. Okay. I haven't really thought about it, so I wouldn't really know where to start, mm -hmm. but yeah, I mean, if that's something that I wanted to do, you know, if it was something that I felt passionate about, I'm absolutely sure I could, you know, in my free time or, you know, on my lunch break or whatever, I'm sure that I could. Um, and I'm sure that there's more than enough resources and groups. And I'm sure that there are people who left academia that are now in industry that want to continue writing that could <laughs> give me advice on how to do that. Um, I never really thought about it, though. It's a question that's been asked. Um, some people feel like 
once you leave academia, your chance at continuing to do research and publish is over. You'll never have that chance again. And I, I disagree with that. I don't think that's the case at all. There are no. plenty, like, just given what you do, you probably have enough data that you could write some really interesting sociolinguistic papers if you wanted to, oh, I'm if sure. that was a yeah. thing you wanted to put time into. And you might even be able to get your employer to support it because it makes them look good and it makes you look even better. And, you know, there's a lot yeah. connected with it. Actually, now that you mentioned that, there was, um, I, I actually had thought about it at my previous employer. So mm -hmm. the first industry job that laid me off. Um there was so much data there that I had thought about publishing a paper. I had thought about doing some research, mm -hmm. um, which kind of got cut short when I got laid off. But um, there were other researchers that did that. And there was one that I'm thinking of that she left uh, before it really went too far. But she had actually published a couple papers and gone to some conferences mm -hmm. and spoke about them. And yeah, I, I wish I had followed up with her, but she ended up leaving and I haven't been in contact with her, but I had thought about doing the same thing. Um, so yeah, I'm sure that's definitely an option. Yeah, yeah. I, it For people coming out of academia, sometimes the scope of what you can do in industry is not clear. And mm -hmm. I, I think it's important to just be aware that you can continue to do those things. I mean, if that's what you're into, you can still go to LSA conferences if you want. Oh, definitely. I mean, you yeah. can publish oh, a yeah. language if you want to. There's no yeah. reason. <laughs> just because you don't work at a university doesn't mean you can't do those things. Uh, oh, no. So yeah. it, it's not like you're turning your back on everything that maybe you were jazzed about when you were doing something and whether you were a student or whether you were employed. You can still do those things. It's just in a different structure. And mm -hmm. um, sometimes it's a lot better because there's not all this pressure to publish, right? Like you're not going to lose your job if you don't publish. You're doing right. it because you're really interested and you think you have something important to contribute to the literature, which is arguably a better reason for doing it than I will lose my tenure if I don't publish this paper. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think there's there's lots of options. And like you said, sometimes employer-sponsored options. Yes, employers can be very nice. And, and for people <laughs> who only have only, I say only, if you want to go back to graduate school, sometimes your employer will pay for that too. You can mm -hmm. get your PhD or if you just have, if you have a BA and you want to get your master's, sometimes, you know, they'll send you back to school for it, which is a nice perk. Oh, definitely. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of perks of working in industry. <laughs> so um, I think that we're kind of wrapping things up here. You've given so many great examples of things that you personally have lived through on, on your journey here. Are, are there any other little uh, like bits of information or inspiration that you want to, to pass along to anybody who might be listening? And also, could people contact you through LinkedIn if they wanted to uh, just get in touch? Oh, absolutely. I'm always happy to to speak with people. I mean, when I was unemployed both times, I reached out to my network and did either informational interviews or, you know, just had people look over my resume. And I'm more than happy to do the same thing. Awesome. So definitely people can reach out to me. More than happy to chat. Um, and as far as I think the most important thing that I want to emphasize again is if you see a job and you think you could do it, even if you don't meet all of the qualifications, please apply. <laughs> um, again, going back to that study where women only apply if they meet 100% of the qualifications, don't do that. Um, you know, you have a lot of transferable skills. Um, mm -hmm. It might not look exactly like it looks like on the job posting, 
but you know even just looking at me i worked like i said at mac truck i worked as a bartender i worked in banks i worked as a teacher um and all of those those jobs had skills that i learned that were transferable transferable maybe mm -hmm. not mac truck i don't know <laughs> but, <laughs> but either way i learned from all of those places so many things that i've taken now into industry and now into a job that i really like um that if i hadn't focused on some of those skills um and i would if i would have just read the job description i wouldn't have gotten to where mm -hmm. i'm at now mm -hmm. so i guess just don't undersell yourself and apply for the job yeah, I, I'm, I think that, that that is exactly right. And I'm glad that you mentioned before, too, that while you were unemployed and looking, you applied for a lot of jobs, you know, 100 a or more jobs. And <laughs> again, that, that, is, that is normal. It's normal. Yeah. It's not like you're never going to find a job or that other people are applying for two jobs and then getting it. It's, it's a, a quantity thing and also crafting your, your outer presentation to be the most appealing in the kind of career that you want to have. You know, you mentioned before that you had been working on your resume and, and trying to make it uh, a little more appealing to the kind of people who might want to hire yeah. you. And that's kind of a never ending process, right? Like you're always yeah. honing it and doing it. So the job search, <clears throat> it's a process. It's not a, a one-time thing where you just kind of shoot your resume and sign up for a couple of places and then sit back and wait for the job offers to roll in. It's like, uh, it's not like that. It's a job. It's getting a job is a job. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> yes, that is absolutely <laughs> the truth. <laughs> oh, yes. oh man. That is great. Well, um, thank you, Christina. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. This has been really fantastic. I will put your LinkedIn link in the show notes and Perfect. hopefully, you know, some people might get in touch and um, you will continue to to pay it back to the, the new people who are coming up. And I think they will do that in turn with people who will contact them Absolutely. once they get jobs in industry. Yes, we got to help each other out. Definitely. Linguistics Career Launch 2021 was a one-month intensive program intended to familiarize linguistics students and faculty with career options beyond academia in business, tech, government, and nonprofit organizations. Videos of all our recorded sessions are available on our YouTube channel. LCL 2021 was organized by Nancy Frischberg, Alexander Johnston, Emily Pace, Susan Steele, and Laurel Sutton. You can get in touch at linguisticscareerlaunch at gmail.com.